Father, we've sung of your grace in multiple ways this morning. In the first hymn we sang and the one we just sang now, we have been reminded that because of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, the price of our sin has been paid, our pardon has been granted, and we are released from the chains, the bondage of sin that have shackled us, held us, captivated us, condemned us. Praise God, we are free. And we understand, our Father, that it is not we ourselves. It is the astounding Savior, Jesus Christ. Yet not I, but Christ in me. So many blessings that are to be had in Christ. Nothing in our hands we bring, simply to the cross we cling. This is our Savior. And our Father, we are dependent upon Him and needy for Him. And we thank You that all that we need, He is for us. And He has granted to us when we believe in Him. Oh, the riches of this grace, we thank You. One of the things He has granted to us as well is to make Himself known and to make You known through the work of the Spirit who penned the Scriptures that we hold in our hands. The Spirit of God moving in the lives and hearts of men so that we have not the ideas of men, but we have the wisdom of God. And so, our Father, would we Take this book this morning from a passage that probably is not well known to most of us. And might we be changed by it? Might we demonstrate through it genuine transformation, genuine change? And might you be pleased to work real righteousness in us through this word? We're asking for transformation. And we're asking for transformation so that you will be exalted. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. A few years ago, Richard Patterson was told by a Muslim friend that in Islam, there is a tradition of writing out the Quran by hand for those who are particularly devoted followers of Islam. Richard thought that that seemed to be a good idea. And because he wasn't Muslim, he didn't want to do that with the Koran, but instead went to the store, found some appropriate paper and some fine writing pens, and began handwriting the King James Bible. All 788,000 words-ish. For six to eight hours every day, with gusts to 10 to 14 hours a day, for four years... He meticulously transcribed the Bible. And after four years and 2,400 pages, he finished. He said he does not consider himself to be particularly religious, however. Which begs the question, why do it? Quote, it expands my mind more and more. Not so I can become more of a religious person, 
but so that I can become more of a whole person, end quote. Whatever that means. He apparently believes that the practice itself makes him better, but without considering his relationship to God. His delusion is not unusual. Even the Old Testament Israelites were confused about the reason for their spiritual practices as as evidenced in the chapter we began looking at last week and will continue looking at this morning, Zechariah chapter 7. In the section we want to look at this morning, verses 8 to 14, God is still answering the question about fasting that I paraphrase this way. Can we stop now? Can we be done? That's verse 3. And it expands this section on the indictment of Israel's false motives. That was the indictment last week. You, you fast, but you come with false motives. Your desire isn't to be obedient to me. Your desire is not to place yourself in submission to me. You certainly don't want to be dependent on me. You would rather have your own independence. And so your fasting is useless. The indictment continues today to include false obedience and false submission to the Word of God and a reminder of the consequences of those failures. All these combined reveal what independent, non-repentant, unrighteous living looks like. You want a picture of unrighteousness? Then come to this passage, Zechariah 7, 8 to 14, and that's what you'll see. What we find in these verses is that their quest to end their fasts was really a quest to end their dependence on God. They wanted self-autonomy. They wanted a loosening of the shackles of obedience and submission to God. They wanted religiousness without a genuine righteousness that is found in God alone. And this second response from God demonstrates that their desire was a manifestation of unrighteousness. It was, in fact, a rejection of God's word. It was a rejection, not just of God. It was a rejection of God himself. The emphasis that God will address in verses 8 to 14, we might say this way. Spiritual disciplines, including fasting, Spiritual disciplines are of value only when they produce righteous submission to God's word. The goal of the disciplines is not to ingratiate God to us. It is not to make God dependent on us. It is not to manipulate God in any particular way. It is not to make sure that we have a good day and not a bad day. The spiritual disciplines are only beneficial to us when they produce a genuine heart righteousness that places ourselves in submission to the Word of God. In this passage, we're going to find three characteristics of righteousness that are unveiled by God in His declaration to the nation of Israel. Three characteristics of righteousness. Again, spiritual disciplines are of value only when they produce righteous submission to God and His Word. What is the first characteristic of righteousness? Let us notice in verses 8 to 10, first of all, a picture of the righteous life. This is a picture of the righteous life. You can maybe even circle and underline, star, asterisk, the word A. This is not everything that there is to be said about righteousness, but this is part of what it means to be righteous. What is a demo, what is a, a transformed life by God look like? And as we come to this section, we find in verse 8 
the same phraseology that we found in verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, this is a... Um, this is a mechanism that God uses four times in these chapters, uh, verse 4, verse 8, chapter 8, verse 1, and then chapter 8, verse 18. And it delineates four speeches, four admonishments, four revelations, as, you were, as it were, from God to the Israelites. It's four answers from God to the question, can we give up fasting? Can we set this aside? Is now the time when we can stop doing this thing that we've been doing for these many years. And just by way of reminder, in verses 5, 6, and 7, in his first answer, God exposed the hypocrisy of wanting to be free of fasting. Though their fasts were not mandated by God, they were designed by God to express their dependence on God, and they wanted out of that ritual so that they could, in essence, say, we don't need God, we're not dependent on Him, we are independent, self-dependent, self-reliant. We don't need Him. Dare I say, we don't want Him. Certainly not on His terms. And so as we come to this phrase in verse 8, we're seeing the second answer of God to that declaration, we don't want him. This opening phrase is a reminder as well about the authority of God that is compelling the Israelites to be confronted with their sin and to obey him. And so he reminds them with this, this isn't Zechariah's idea. Yeah, Zechariah's the mouthpiece it's, it's, it's a declaration that's coming to Zechariah, and Zechariah is exposing it to you. But this isn't Zechariah's idea. This is the word of the Lord. This is sovereign God. This is covenant God, Yahweh. This is, this is the king of kings. This is the one who is master on high. This is the one who owns all things. And he is the one that is coming very often in the, he's the one that is speaking very often in this section. He uses the phrase, not just the Lord, but the Lord of hosts. And we've seen as we've made our way through this book, it's it's the, the most usages of that phrase. The Lord of hosts appears in this book more than any other book in the Old Testament. And it's a way to emphasize that God is almighty. He is sovereign. He is preeminent. He is exalted above all. And in this section particularly, chapter 7 and 8, we find that phrase being used over and over and over. Look, just skip down to the maybe the bottom of the page or the next page, chapter 8. Then the word of the Lord of hosts. And it's a reminder God Almighty is speaking. This isn't just somebody's idea. This is God, the one who is almighty, who is sovereign, who is above all the armies of heaven and on earth and everything that is in both heaven and earth. He's the one who is speaking. 8.1, then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me speaking. Verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts. Verse 3, thus says the Lord. Verse 4, thus says the Lord of hosts. Verse 6, thus says the Lord of hosts. Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts. Verse 9, thus says the Lord of hosts. Verse 14, thus says the Lord of hosts. Verse 18, and the word of the Lord of hosts came. Verse 19, thus says the Lord of hosts. 20, thus says the Lord of hosts. Verse 21, to seek the Lord of hosts, 
Verse 22, so many peoples and mighty nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Do you get a message? This isn't about you. This isn't your idea. You don't get to decide how you come to God. This isn't about you saying to God, I'm great and I'm good. I, I'm, I don't need this stuff anymore. It's God reminding them over and over and over and over, I am authoritative. And you will follow me. He is authoritative in his title, the Lord of hosts, and he is authoritative in what he says. He is authoritative. He doesn't want to be authoritative. He is authority. And he expects submission to authority. And watch this. There is no righteousness without submission to that authority. That's the whole tenor of these chapters. The Israelites are saying, we're good, God. We're good with you. We're righteous on our own. And God says, you don't get to determine whether or not you're righteous. Righteousness is exemplified by your submission to me, the one who is authoritative. Are you following me? Are you following what I say? Specifically in this second message, God will emphasize the need not just for following him, but a need for genuine inner conformity to God over their legalistic practices it's not just about what you do. It's about what is inside of you and then what emanates from a genuine commitment to me that is what is of essence. And in these opening verses, particularly verses 8 through 10, he's going to be focusing especially on transformed relationships. You talk about righteousness. Okay, let's do a test. How are you doing in your relationships. So here's a picture of the righteous life in the context of relationships. And the first picture is having honest, brotherly relationships. And what he's going to find here, what he's going to delineate here, um, is something that Micah the prophet talks about in Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6, he says in verse 7, Well, let me back up to verse 6. With what shall I come to the Lord? And with what shall I bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to Him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts and the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What's going to satisfy God? Is Is it just about getting the right sacrifice and taking the right thing and making sure that it's just the right calf when I show up? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And this is, this is the very thing that he's going to focus on in these opening verses of this section. Verse 9, thus has the Lord of hosts said, dispense true justice. The first The first sign of having honest, brotherly relationships is a dispensing of true justice. In fact, the the force of that phrase is something like judging with true justice. So that word judge is used in two different forms 
And he's saying, you want, you need to be doing the things that are right, that are just, that are fair, that are appropriate, that are helpful. Justice is a very common concept in the Old Testament. That word is used, that word group is used something on the order of 425 times in the Old Testament. Justice is foundational to the law. And it's foundational to the nature and character of God. What's God like? He's just. He's fair. He does the right things. Now, what's interesting here is that God says to the Israelites, "If if you want to be righteous, then dispense true justice. Now, think about that for just a moment. If it's going to be just, can it ever be untrue? Is there such a thing as untrue justice? If it's just, it has to be true. And so I think there's a couple things going on. When he says true justice, I think in part he's just emphasizing it. Judge with right justice. Judge with right righteousness, if you will. And so it's just this emphatic idea. In multiple different ways he's saying, be right. And do the right thing. And we'll see in just a moment that it's in the context of relationships. But I think it's also something in addition to that. The word true also has the idea of reliability and permanence and faithfulness. And we see this in Psalm 146. Psalm 146, verse 6. But it says about the nature of God. The one who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps, and my translation says, faith forever. It's that same word true. He keeps truth forever. He he is faithful to the nature of truthfulness and righteousness. And so it's it's not just that he's true, but he's perpetually true, continually true, faithfully true. And I think that's what the Lord is getting at in this section. That in the dispensing of justice, it's done faithfully and continually ongoingly, perpetually. And he is speaking, I think in part, and we'll see this in chapter 8, in part he's talking about make sure that when you're making legal decisions in your court system that that you're doing it righteously, right? So you're, you're following the great king in heaven and making decisions in your courts that accord with that. That's true. And that's part of it. But I think he's also talking at a personal level. It's not just the court system. It's the people as we relate to one another. In fact, notice the end of this, that this is to be dispensed each one to his brother. It's not just about the formal relationships. It's about the kin relationships. And they ought to be governed by justice, treating each other fairly. We ought to be, can I say it this way? Israelites ought to be scrupulously and overtly truthful and fair in what they do. It's like what what James says, the half-brother of Jesus, chapter 5 of his epistle. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Your word's your bond. What you say is what you do. Dispense true justice. There's a second and third aspect that governs those relationships, and it's in the next phrase in verse 9, dispense true justice and practice kindness and practice compassion each to his brother. 
And again, this is emphasizing that every member of Israel, every citizen of Israel was responsible to carry this out in relation to those who they were in fellowship with and had relationship with. Two things that he points to, two attributes he points to. One is kindness. That's the common Old Testament word for grace. If you've heard the word hesed, that's this word. It's, it's loyal love. It's covenantal love. It's, it's the love that God has for his people when he goes into covenant with them and said, you're mine and nothing can take you away. It's the kind of love that a husband and wife have for one another as they come into covenantal love with one another. It's the giving of grace to others because of a a promised reality and responsibility. It is generous. It is warm. It doesn't just do good things and kind things. It loves to do them because of the connection of relationship that's covenanted. And then he says not just kindness with one another, but compassion with one another. Compassion is mercy that comes from one's bowels. It is, it is an inwardly driven compassion. It comes from the gut, if you will. It's, it's what's inside of us. It's, it's the inner man. It's not just the one who says, I gotta do this, but it's the one who says, I wanna do this. Why do you do things for people? And why, why do you sacrifice for people? Because you love them. And that's what love does. That's compassion. And these attributes were expected of every Israelite. But it's not just Israel that's needing to do these kinds of things, is it? We find almost an identical list for the believer in Jesus Christ in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. So... As those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. It's, it's the same list, just a little longer, isn't it? Because we are in relationship with one another, we love one another, are gracious to one another. Honest in our brotherly fellowship with one another. That's what ought to be done. That's what Israel was called to do. This, this was not, by the way, new information for them. This is near the closing of the Old Testament canon, right? It's a po- what we call a post-exilic prophet, which is a fancy way of saying it's, it's a prophet who prophesied after they returned from the exile in Babylon. These are some of the last words of the Old Testament. I mean, literally, if you look at your page, you know, you're on uh, page 1333 and you go, at least in my Bible, 1333, and I go to 1344. We got 11 pages left. We're just about done. And this is, this is near the end, but, but it's also been, so he's not giving new revelation. Like I've been holding out for 1300 pages and haven't told you, and this is what you need to do. This is, this is what they've been told right from the get go. This is Old Testament law stuff. This is, this is Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy kinds of truth. And this is the very place where they had repeatedly failed. If a man is righteous and practices justice and righteousness, Ezekiel says in chapter 18, 
and does not eat at the mountain shrines or lift up his eyes to idols of the house of Israel or defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman during your menstrual period. If a man does not oppress anyone but restores to the debtor his pledge and does not commit robbery but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with clothing and if he does not lend money on interest or take increase and if he keeps his hand from iniquity and executes true justice between man and man, if he walks in my statutes and my ordinances so as to deal faithfully, he is righteous and he will surely live. That's the way to live, Ezekiel says. And he carries that out through the remainder of the chapter. And this is the very area where the Israelites had repeatedly, repeatedly fallen. It's not about it's not about taking care of you. It's about taking care of, about me, of me. Listen, loving care of covenanted relational people is not optional. It wasn't optional for Israel and it's not optional for the believer in Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Brothers and sisters, we, we, we're loving each other well. As we said last year repeatedly over and over, let's excel still more. There's more work to be done. We dare not let up. We must continue in this loving care, honestly relating to one another as brothers. And there's another picture that the Lord paints for us about what righteousness looks like. And it's given to us in verse 10. And it is compassionate giving care. In addition to gracious mutual relationships, the kind of things he talked about in verse 9, there's, a, there's another kind of relationship we have where there's not mutuality, there's not sameness. It's, it's easy to be nice to the people who are nice to you, right? It's like, well, that, that's not hard because I know today I'm being nice to you, scratching your back, and tomorrow you'll be nice to me, you're scratching my back. And so it's like, well, yeah, I'll be nice because you're going to be nice. What about those who can do nothing for you? How are you going to treat them? What if there's not mutuality? What if there's not only not mutuality, but you have an opportunity to demonstrate your power, your authority, your might? What if they're lower than you in some realm of life? How are you going to treat them? And do not, he says, oppress. The word oppress means to take advantage of those who are vulnerable. It's used in a variety of contexts. It's used about political oppression, financial oppression, social oppression, to push down, to suppress, to exploit the weak, the lowly, the vulnerable. It is to crush those who are in a low position. And he identifies four groups that are particularly vulnerable. The widow, verse 10. She has no husband. She has no one to provide for him, for her. And she has no means of livelihood. She's alone in this world. And she's dependent on others being nice to her. How are we going to treat her? And the orphan, not just the widow, but the orphan. They're even more vulnerable than the widow. They have no provider, no wisdom. They lack maturity. They lack discernment. They lack ability physically. 
If the widow is dependent, the orphan far more dependent. And the stranger, the foreigner, the temporary resident, they're at a disadvantage because they're different. They don't look like us. They don't act like us. They don't talk like us. I'll be honest. Carol Gifford comes to read and I drool over his accent. I wish I could talk like that. I'm the foreigner. I'm the stranger that's come into the land. And by God's grace, you've been so nice to me. But it's easy to say, he doesn't look like us. He doesn't talk like us. And we're going to treat him differently than us. He's a them, not an us. And the poor, particularly vulnerable at times of economic depravity, How are you going to treat them? The Israelites are saying, God, we're good. (laughs) We We don't need this fast thing anymore. And God's saying, you've missed the point of the fast. I would think that when they heard these words from Zechariah, that they couldn't help but think about Isaiah 58 that we read earlier. We're coming, God, to fast, right? We're, we're coming to fast. And, 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 and we're, we're coming to, to be near you, Isaiah 58, 2. And, but, but, but why, verse 3, why, why do we fast and you don't see us? Why have we humbled ourselves in fasting and you don't notice? And God answers, verse 3, because on the day of your fast, you find your desire It's all about you and what you want, what you want to accomplish. And you're driving hard, all of your workers. You're fasting, but you're pushing those who are underneath you with severity. Your fasting is for contention and strife and to strike with a a wicked fist. You fast like you do today to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast like this that I choose? Is that what I want? And he tells us, What he wants. Is this not the fast that I choose? Verse 6. To loosen the bonds of wickedness. To undo the bands of the yoke. To let the oppressed go free. To break the yoke. To divide your bread with the hungry. To bring the homeless poor into the house. When you see the naked one. To cover him. Etc. It's about caring for others. You talk about fasting. I'm talking about how are you caring for those who are oppressed. Who are suffering. Who are weak. Needy. Dependent. Why should the Israelite conduct himself this way? Because it's demanded by the law. Leviticus 25 makes it clear. This is the law. But even far more than that, because it emulates God. God cares for the weak and the vulnerable. How do we know? Because he cared for me. And I was weak and vulnerable and needy and dependent. So here's the question as we make our way through verse 10. The Israelite and we should be asking ourselves the question, are the vulnerable safe with me? I'm not talking about cultivating social programs. I'm not making a political statement. I'm talking about personal care. Do we care for those who've been put in our pathway to such a degree that we share well with them so that we give them and minister to them and embrace them and love them 
when they can give nothing in return. They take and they don't give. Not because they don't want to, but they can't. How are we caring for them? That's the test of righteousness. How do you care for one another? How do you care for the vulnerable and needy? The question is not, am I fasting and is that making me righteous? The question is, am I demonstrating righteousness by my care of others and by my willingness to be poured out and used up for their sake? There's one other picture of the righteous life. It's given to us at the end of verse 10. And it's pure heart desires. Listen, it's not enough to simply say, well, I'm going to do this. God wants it coming from a humble heart. Yea, these many years ago, uh, one of our children was, I think she was about three years old. And I don't remember what happened. But there was something that was said or done at a dinner table in a public setting. Isn't that always the way it goes? And I, um, I excused myself and excused the daughter for her sake to go with me. And we found a private place to talk. And I came back to the table and I said to the daughter, what do you want to say? And she addressed the person whom she had sinned against and said, I'm sorry. Actually, she said something like, I'm sorry. (laughs) And I said, are you doing that with a happy heart? To which the other family member, not Regine, but an extended family member said to me, Oh, Terry, isn't it enough that she said, I'm sorry? No, it's not. I don't want to create a Pharisee. It's got to come from the heart. She's got to, she's got to regret and confess with humility and brokenness. And I understand she's three. She's not in Christ yet. But I want to set the pattern early, right? That's what we see here. It's not enough to just say, okay, I'll write a check. And I'll give 12% instead of 10. Is that enough? No. You can't devise evil in your hearts against one another. It has to flow what you do from a genuine heart desire. You can't cultivate evil. You can't have an inward contempt for those whom you are serving. You can't have an inward desire to harm while you're giving. And why would God say that? I think the only reason he says that is because that's what's there. They're doing these things, but they still have contempt and bitterness in their hearts. Jesus talks about this. Matthew chapter 22. You can just turn forward about 40, 50 pages or so to Matthew chapter 22. Verse 36, teacher, what is the great commandment of the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. 
You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love neighbor. Can't love neighbor without loving God. Can't love God without loving neighbor. They go hand in hand. And you can't do loving things without loving. Goes to the inward nature. It's not about doing. It's about being transformed. God's not impressed by fasting. Isn't it interesting? Oh, all this that God has said is precipitated by this question, an innocent question. It seems an appropriate question. You know, we've been fasting for 70 years. Can we stop now? I mean, things are going well. You're blessing, so obviously things are okay between us. He says, let me look at your heart. Let me do a zipper on your chest and peer inside. And he's exposed them. He desires people. Israel and us to give up their very lives in caring for one another. We don't have time to take a look at it, but just jot in your notes if you're following along. Philippians 3.20 and look at the example of Epaphroditus. We find this stuff all over. But who delighted in being poured out, even giving his life for the sake of the Philippians. That's the norm. You want to know someone who's righteous? Don't look and see how much are they fasting. Well... 24 hours, good job. 48, wow, that's impressive. It's not the test. Here's the test. What are your relationships like? How do you care for others? Second characteristic of the righteous life. Let's look at the sources of the... Okay, now here, um, somebody forgot to proofread the notes that he was giving you. And um, Mark Twain, I think it was, said there's a... You need to be careful with words. Meaning of words is important because there's a vast difference between lightning and a lightning bug. And there's a vast difference between righteousness and unrighteousness, like an infinite degree of difference between the two. And the word righteousness that is in your notes needs the little prefix un in front of it. Where does unrighteousness come from? Where does the kind of stuff that God condemns in verses 9 and 10 come from? Well, he tells us in verses 11 and 12. It comes, first of all, from inattention to God's word. Starting in verse 11, God isn't speaking. Now Zechariah is speaking in verse 11, and he is reminding his hearers of the past history of Israel. And he notes that Israelites previously refused to pay attention to the Lord. They refused. In other words, the nation refused. All of the people in Israel refused. And it wasn't just like they were inattentive, like the preacher is going on and 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 you kind of drift off. I know that happens. I'm not here, surely not, but I know in some places in the Sunday morning sermon, people drift occasionally. I know it certainly never happens when you're reading your Bible or praying or anything like that either. But he's not talking about that. Notice what he says. They refused to pay attention. This was a volitional decision. We don't want God's word. We will not pay attention 
It's not an auditory problem. It's a heart problem. They don't care about God. As I was writing the message, I was kind of thinking about what to say at this point and how to extrapolate. And I just, I was kind of stuck. And so I just put a word there and put it in red so I'd remember to go back to it. And I put the word apathy. And I went back and I thought about it. He's not talking about apathy. This is an apathy. You know, it's not, it's not, well, I just don't care. It's rebellion. This is the person who doesn't say, well, you know, if it's all well and good, if you want Jesus, that's fine. But I'm not interested. That's not this. This is the person when they hear the word Jesus, takes the door, slams it in your face. It's the person who writes you the letter and says, don't ever talk to me about Jesus again. We've gotten those letters. It's the person who says, if you ever speak to me the name of Jesus again, I'm going to never speak to you again. And you, as we have, have had family members say that. It's not just apathy. It's willful inattention. I do not want him. It gets worse. It is a full rejection of God's word. Notice how this is pictured. They refused to pay attention and they turned a stubborn shoulder. Now, I'm not a farmer. I'm not a rancher, but I'm told that there are some animals that are hard to harness. And in this context, he's probably talking about oxen. Not too many oxen around here, but I imagine there's probably a stubborn horse, donkey, mule somewhere in the county that doesn't like being harnessed. And when that, when you come out, come out with a harness and you're coming towards their head, they turn and they rear and they run. And that's what he's talking about. And you get on them and they're pulling and they're tugging and they're trying to get out of the restraints. That's the stubborn shoulder. And they stop their ears. This is the same word that's used about Pharaoh. It's the same word that's used about the nation of Israel in Isaiah chapter 6. Plug their ears. I'm not going to hear. Can't hear you. They made their hearts like flint. Some of your translations may say diamond. Um... It's just a hard stone that's impenetrable. It's unbreakable. And they made their hearts like flint. And in what way did they do that? Or why did they do that? Verse 12, so that they could not hear the law, parentheses, and the prophets. They don't want the beginning of the Bible, the law, They don't want the end of the Bible, the prophets. They don't want anything to do with the scriptures. They're rejecting it all. They reject it because they're rebellious against God's word. They lost their ability to know, to understand and respond to the word. And so they didn't. Did you notice that? They made their hearts like flint so that they could not hear. You rebel enough. You cut off the flow of God's word to your heart long enough and you'll become callous to it. And you won't be able to hear anymore. 
and the time would be past. You don't want to do that. What's interesting here is you might think that Zechariah would say, remember when this happened. And he doesn't give an example. Why doesn't he give an example? Because this is the whole history of Israel. This is what they did repeatedly over and over and over and over. This is Israel in the wilderness. This is Israel with the judges. This is Israel's kings. This is Israel under kingship. This is Israel that had to go into Babylon. This is Israel when she gets back from Babylon. This is Israel with Jesus. This is Israel's history. It's the long war against God. And how important was this word that they rejected? Notice what he says about the word. You could not hear, they could not hear the word excuse me, could not hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts, there's that phrase again, God Almighty, and it's a reminder you're accountable to Him who is sovereign, which the Lord of hosts had sent by His Spirit. It's not just... It's not just prophetic talk. It's not just Zechariah. It's not just Isaiah. This is God himself speaking. Sounds just like what Peter says in his second letter, doesn't it? But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. This is God's word. He's behind it. And when you've rejected it, you've not rejected Moses, you've rejected God. Just a side tip. When you read your Bible, don't close it without saying, what's God telling me about Him? And what's God telling me about me? So that I can be changed. It's all about His revelation. He's talking to you. Are you listening? It's a reminder, this entire section, that God's word is authoritative. It's compelling. Yeah, it's well written. I mean, there's, there's some fascinating stories and they're really told well. It's interesting. It's instructive. But most of all, it's commanding and it demands attention and allegiance. That's what he's called us to. Notice the progression here. They don't give attention. They don't listen. They reject. And they become hardened. And like the stony soil in Jesus' parable, they will not bear fruitfulness in their lives. There's an even greater consequence than having hardened hearts. And that is that God judges, and He judges in two ways. One, He does not respond. You ever notice that sometimes the Scriptures are really straightforward? And there are t- there, there's at times just this, this bluntness to the Scriptures. Verse 12 and verse 13 are one of those oh no verses. 
They hardened their hearts. They would not hear. Therefore, great wrath came from the Lord of hosts, from God Almighty. It seems pretty clear that what he's talking about is the wrath of the Babylonian captivity. You rebelled and you rebelled and you rebelled and God warned and God warned and God warned and you rejected it. And so he took you away. And then in Babylon, they awakened. I'm in trouble. I need help. And verse 13, And just as he called, and they would not listen, God calls. God's speaking. How's he speaking? In this book, through the prophets. He spoke to Moses. He spoke to the prophets. He spoke to all the other biblical writers. He spoke. And they said, not for me. So they called and I would not listen, says the Lord of hosts. The one who is almighty, who had a capacity to help, turned a deaf ear. Again, this isn't an auditory problem. It's not like God has suddenly gone deaf. Oh, he hears the words. But he's, to use their image, the image he used of them, he's turned the cold shoulder to them. He has stopped his ears to them. And he has made his heart like flint against them. They wanted their sin. So they could not have him. This is Psalm 66, 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. If I think on and meditate on and desire and pursue and live sin, God will not hear my prayer. I can't engage in willful rebellion and then presume that I'm in fellowship with him. They do not go hand in hand. Someone said in my commentary reading this week, he, he said, this is powerlessness in prayer. And that resonated momentarily. And I thought, no, it's not. It's not powerlessness in prayer. Powerlessness in prayer. It is unheard and rejected prayer. It's not just that they are powerless. But God is issuing a mandate against them. I'm not listening. I will not respond. It's a reminder that God will not be shared with other idols and other gods, even if the idol is myself. In God's grace and kindness, I've not had this experience recently though one of our secretaries had it this week. I walked by and I said, what are you doing? She said, I'm on hold. I've been on hold for 45 minutes after being on hold for 30 minutes and then having the call cut off. You know what that's like. We've all been there. You call, you just got a, you got a simple question. This is like a two-minute thing. Can you just take care of this for me? And you wait 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 and you wait. And the only thing more frustrating than the music that they're playing is the music going off and hearing a click at the end. That's not this. This isn't an annoyance. This is eternal damnation. 
being shut off from God. You might be thinking, as the Israelites were thinking, yeah, but God is so demanding. It's, it's hard to give up what I want in order to follow Him. That's true. It, it is hard. You've got to give up yourself. You've got to give up your self-righteousness. You have, to, you have to live dependently on Him for everything. But there's something harder than giving up your demands and your desires and your wants. What's harder is following after your own sin and experiencing the condemnation and rejection from God that following after your own sin will produce. Oh, friend, if you're in this situation, run from the sin and to Christ. This is one of those hard verses, isn't it? The Lord will not hear. He will not hear. A contemporary of Zechariah is Daniel. In the first year of Darius, Daniel 9, the son of Ahasuerus of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. He read his Bible and he realized God said, Babylonian captivity, 70 years. And he got here and he realized, I've been here 70 years. And the Lord has said to Israel, I'm not hearing, I'm not hearing, I'm not hearing. You're calling and I'm not responding. And Daniel called. End of the chapter. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week, this is speaking about the Antichrist, he will put a stop to the sacrifice and the grain offering, and on the wing of abomination will come the one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. This is all about the coming of the Messiah, the end of time, and God's preservation of his people. And God heard You may be in a situation right now where God isn't hearing. Oh, brother and sister, there is grace to be had even when God says, I'm not hearing. And if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ today, I implore you. He's calling. Did you hear it? He called. God called. And God is calling. And if you repent and turn from your sin and believe in Christ and believe that He's worth living for, He will save you from the condemnation of your sin and from the bondage of your sin. Just got to call. So even the one who doesn't hear in His grace will hear. What are the consequences of an unrighteous life? There is a point at which God does not respond And there is a place at which God does judge. Verse 14. They called, I would not listen. And instead of listening to them, I scattered them with a storm wind among all the nations whom they have not known. I sent first the ten tribes of Israel into captivity in Assyria. And then I sent the two southern tribes into captivity in Babylon. And thus... 
the land is desolated behind them so that no one went back and forth. There's no coming and going into and out of the land. There's no coming and going and doing the work and raising the crops for they made, because of their rebellion and God's resultant wrath, they made the pleasant land desolate. Twice he uses that word desolate. It's empty. It's devastated. It's isolated. It's deserted. It doesn't hold crops. It's unlivable, unmanageable. What is that place? It's the pleasant land. The land flowing with milk and honey. You want some grapes? Yeah, let me get a long rod and two of us can carry one bundle of grapes out. And that was made desolate because of rebellion. The destruction of a land was a picture of the danger and the coming judgment of God and the danger of not repenting. It's a a reminder. God will not be mocked. He was patient with Israel and her rebellion and He may be patient with you in your rebellion now, but He will judge all sin. He is a righteous God. He must judge all sin. Do not mistake His patience for His apathy. He will judge because he does care about his righteousness. Again, the Israelites, the Bethelites had come to Jerusalem seeking an answer to a simple question. Can we stop the fasting deal? Is now the time? It seemed simple. But they did not receive a direct answer. Instead, they received a rebuke for their self-righteousness, for their self-dependence. And they received an examination of their spiritual condition. We think fasting makes us spiritual. Okay, let's check. Are you spiritual? Here's the question for us. Same test. In your righteousness, are you honest in your brotherly relationships? Are you compassionate in giving care to the needy and vulnerable? Are your heart desires for others pure? Are you being attentive and obedient to God's word? You want to know what righteousness is? That's it. That's righteousness. That's the test. That's what God's desiring. Yeah, spiritual disciplines. I'm all in. I counsel it. I teach it. I practice it all the time. But with this end, not for self-righteousness, not for self-dependence, but to demonstrate I'm God-dependent and I need His transformation. Father, thank You for this word. Isn't this this the uniqueness of this book that we have in our hands? That things that were written 2,500 plus years ago are still relevant today. Different culture, different time, different, different covenantal relationships. And yet, there's a vitality and a necessity of this word that is just as appropriate for us today as it was when it was spoken. And so would you use this word to change us, to transform us? Would you give us transformation by this word? And specifically this morning, would it continue to work to transform our relationships? And that we might be fair, just, righteous, compassionate as an expression of our obedience to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.